Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody, I am here with Chris from Displaced Gamers. How's it going, man? Going well, thanks for having me, man. Uh, I'm very glad to have you on. I've been wanting to have you on for a long time, but I do have something to admit to you and everybody listening before we start. I start all of your videos, but very often I get through them and I'm like, okay, this is over my head. I'm not a programmer, but this is cool. I'll stick with it. But sometimes I'll get halfway through and be like, no, no. No way, can't get it. Too smart for me. I'm out. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I've tried to watch all your videos, but uh, while I think you do an excellent job trying to make them so that anybody could approach it, you do have some very awesome program-centric videos that I think are needed and I think people really appreciate. I just, I'm not smart enough to understand them. <laughs> so an interesting thing about that is, you know, whenever you're making a YouTube video, you have basically a divide, especially when it comes to technology. And you know this, and that is there is a line for entertainment and as soon as you start crossing into technology a little too far, your entertainment value starts to drop. And basically, whenever I'm creating videos, I'm trying to push the technology just a little bit further into and risk entertainment just a bit. So you're not the only one that, <laughs> that'll bail on it. But some people stick around and they have a blast. So. Yeah, I mean, most of them I do. There's just a few where it's like, if I was a programmer or a wannabe programmer, I, I would be absolutely drooling over them. But uh, because I'm not a programmer at heart, some of them do go over my head. But I do, I'd love that you go there. I love that you don't just make it about, okay, I got to get the hits. I have to have my 10 minute and 20 second video to get the algorithm. Like I, I love digging deep and even a whole bunch of mine. Like I have a, a couple on video capture that is zero entertainment factor. I wouldn't recommend anybody watch that unless they were genuinely interested in the tech behind it. And I'm going to have a whole bunch in 2022 that are basically like, you probably shouldn't watch this unless you're a creator or a developer. So I just, I got to come up with like a, a little logo. So like my thumbnails would look different for the ones that are, uh, you know, developer focused and or something like that. But do you have something like that that I just never noticed or like your outlines green and all the super tech ones or something or <laughs> no, I just kind of go and, and hopefully the, uh, the title, you know, if I'm doing behind the code, you know, that's a bit of a warning label for uh, programming centric stuff. So, and then hopefully if somebody's clicking on, you know, what is Luma, you know, or, or 525 line analog video, they know that they're starting down a rabbit hole, you know, if they, if they start to click on that, hopefully. Yeah. So. You know, you say that though, but I watched the behind the codes on the Ninja Gaiden and how it's different. And I understood, all, I mean, when I say I understood all of that, I didn't miraculously know how to program video games, but I understood 
all of the points that you were making and how they related to each other. And then, but you know, like I said, there are some of them that are just, I'm not a programmer, so I just don't have the knowledge to get there. So, but yeah, I mean, you're right. The behind the codes are a little more technical, but a few of them just make perfect sense. If, if you've been, I guess if you have any it background, you don't even necessarily need a programming background, but that a lot of those really made sense for me from that perspective of, you know, commands to how to make things happen at all, you know? Yeah, that's that's really good to hear. I'm 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 glad that you uh, you've kind of gelled with it, even if you're like, hey, I'm not really a, a programmer, you know. And I mean, for some people, they want to be just zeroed in on it, and they'll even comment and say, hey, actually, I have a few comments about how you said this. It actually ties to that. And other people are just like, hey, I'm going to bring a bucket of popcorn and and be like, cool, you know, and just move on to the next thing, you know, even if they don't retain any programming stuff, that's fine. Yeah. So, but I mean, you don't obviously, you know, if, if anybody's unfamiliar, I'll be leaving links to some of my favorite videos you've done in your channel and all that stuff. But you don't just concentrate on programming. You do a lot of things just about video signals and retro gaming and, and kind of as a whole, how these things work. Um, but I, I get the impression you're a programmer, though, right? Are you? A, yes. Okay. By trade, I am a programmer. Yes. That's my educational background as well. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So that does make sense. But how did you cross over into some of the other stuff? Like, you know, like the, the TVL one that you did, I, and I always forget the titles of videos. I, I apologize for that, but you'll know the ones I'm referencing and I'll, I'll put them in, in the, uh, in the description, but you know, the ones with like, uh, you talked about the 525 lines, uh, the, uh, aspect ratio of, uh, CPS games. I mean, those were some brilliant videos that cleared up a lot of stuff for people. How did you even dip your toes in the water for that? So I guess, so back when I got my computer science degree, actually, which was before YouTube, social media and all that stuff, I guess if you were cool on the net back then, you had a GeoCities website and made fun of America online or something like that. <laughs> um, but um, I... When I was pursuing my degree in computer science, I also almost minored in mass communications, like shooting video and doing that sort of thing. And I said, man, I wish there was some way to combine technology and making videos. And there wasn't really an outlet for it. Mm. So fast forward a few years and I start Displaced Gamers with my friend Ginger. And we're just we're just talking over Skype and think, hey, why don't we just record this and put it online? And then move forward a little bit and I start noticing that people are into square aspect ratio on the Super Nintendo. Nintendo, And if you think back, it's been 20 years since uh, SNES 96, which then became 97, which then became 9X. And, uh, and I thought, you know, there are probably plenty of people that have played these games and they've only ever seen them in a square aspect ratio. Hmm. And, and you see people kind of going at it. I said, nobody really talks about this and talks about why it's like that. And so I actually, at that point, I asked Ginger, I said, hey, would you mind if I kind of spin the channel and just start making technical videos? You know, and she said, yeah, go for it, you know. And so that's when I started doing the research on Super Nintendo aspect ratio. And I started and that's when my my friendship with Artemio kicked up, you know, and we were like, hey, you know, we're talking about samples and pixels and, you know, analog television signals. And then it just kind of started spiraling into what you see on the channel now you know i started picking up engineering books and reading about that because as you know bob you don't really want to just jump on wikipedia and forums <laughs> to do your research for anything uh, so uh yeah and that just kind of well it got to be where it is now after several years 
Yeah, so. forums are so dangerous because how could anybody just jumping in understand who knows what they're talking about and who's just the Dunning-Kruger blowhard that wants to see themselves type? And it's impossible. I mean, there are some signs, right? Like I had to dip into some some IT stuff a couple of days ago and I jumped into a forum I've never been on and I'm immediately like, okay, well, ignore that person. But like, let's see if I could figure out who else I'm supposed to listen to. But yeah, it's rough. So So you just went the route of getting engineering books and checking it out that way? I did. And then I would kind of, as I would read through it, I would actually talk to Artemio a bit and say, Hey, can you check me on this? Am I, you know, and he's like, no. And he would have some of the same books. And so we'd confer about stuff because especially when you're doing video signal stuff, uh, you want to make sure you don't get anything wrong. Yeah. Especially because, well, you'll lose your reputation for one thing, you know, and then two, well, now you have these, potentially thousands of people that have heard you say something and it was incorrect. And now you've propagated misinformation, you know, on accident. So yeah, I hate, I, that's why it I takes so long that. to get those things out. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I try to fact check everything and whenever I let something slip, that's wrong. It just, it eats at me. And luckily like the stuff that I've been, the, the most common thing is I'll say like pi is 3.41 instead of 3.14. Everybody's like, or, you know, put a 750 ohm resistor. If you really are working on these projects, you know that it's a 75 ohm and I just fucked up. Right. But it's, what if you don't? And what if you hear that? Like, it does absolutely bug me that I might screw those up. But luckily we have amazing people in the scene like Artemio to help fact check this stuff. And, I've worked with them a lot. Awesome person right there. So it's, there are a lot of really good people to rely on. And it, it's, it's so funny though, because everybody learns differently. Like Voltar even said, that's how he learned is picking up books and reading it. Stee has like a, you know, a degree in this stuff. And for me, like if I ever just picked up a book and started reading, I would retain almost nothing. And then I have to just jump in and start doing it. And I need the visualizations. And then, you know, talking to other people and watching videos like yours are definitely the number one thing. But, you know, maybe I have a learning disability or something. But even watching videos, like, I get it. But if I just had a conversation with that same person that made the same video and went, that's cool, but what did you mean there? Oh, okay. I'll retain that forever, (laughs) but just watching the video or trying to figure it out myself, like it's kind of hard and it's, it's so great that there's resources like, like your channel out there to, to help people along. Cause sometimes you just need to watch two videos on the same topic from two different people because they both explain it perfectly well, but different. So you hit it from both angles and it's like, Oh, Oh, that makes sense now. So. Yeah, for sure. And like, I mean, on the subject of the books, I haven't really read all of them cover to cover. I've mostly used them as reference books, so I'll go for a specific topic and I'll look it up. But I'm the same way, whereas I want hands-on all the time. So even if I'm if I'm reading a book, if I'm talking to somebody, I want, like, there's a reason why I bought that oscilloscope, right? It's because I want to, to dive into it and mess with it. And one of the ways, so at the time I was pursuing computer science, while I was in college, I bought my first arcade machine. It was a hard drive and arcade machine, the full sit down cockpit version of it. And it was mostly broken. And I split the cost uh, with a buddy of mine. And I mean, this was like over 20 years ago, right? So it wasn't too expensive. But before I know it, I have four or five other engineering students over at my apartment just tearing up this machine. <laughs> and we're, we're just like, how does this thing work? We don't know. And of course, the internet didn't have the resources then. So it was very much like, uh, hand hand me that multimeter. Let me see if I can get shocked, you know, or something like that, you know, that kind of a thing. And so, and that was kind of the, um, I guess my interest in engineering really started taking off there as a hobby. Hmm. So I was working for a guy at a time 
who had a degree in engineering and a hobby in computer science. I was pursuing a degree in computer science and I had a hobby in engineering. And 20 plus years ago, engineering and computer science were a lot more of a synergy in terms of what you were learning than they are now, where you're so many layers removed from uh, the hardware as a software developer. Yeah. Why a hard driving, by the way? Because I, I remember playing that. I loved it as a kid because I got to drive and shift with a clutch. But it was just like a favorite game of yours that you thought was neat? Or? I mean, I loved a lot of different arcade games. And I thought like hard driving really stood out because it came out in like 1988. And they never really made a home port that did it any justice. I mean, you could play it on the Genesis or whatever. But I mean, the whole thing is, I mean, it had force feedback steering in 1988. And, you know, you had the gear shift and all that. You could run into the cow and it would moo. And, uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> And there are all these things that I wanted to do in the in the game. They had it for sale at the arcade. And um, when you own the arcade machine, suddenly it turns into a sandbox game because you can turn around and you can go the wrong way. You can control how much time you have on the timer. And so, I mean, we would um, we would go backwards on the course. And if you took the course backwards, there's a barn. I don't know if you remember much about the game at all. Oh, yeah. But basically. But when you start, there's a stunt course and a speed course. And if you turn right, you go past the barn with the cow that moves. And you can go down down the hill. Well, if you turn around and go backward up the hill at full speed, you can jump the barn. And if you turn the wheel to the side, you can actually land the car as well. And so basically... That's what we did. I mean, you know, that was one of the things that we did while playing the game is turning this arcade game into a sandbox game. You know, I, I would spend do. hours doing that. If I knew that that was a thing, I would just, I don't even care how much time it took. I would practice that until I got it right. Just, just for the hell of it. <laughs> yeah. You start making bets on it, you know, like, oh, it's great. <laughs> that is, that is awesome. That is uh, that game gets a bad rap because of its terrible home ports, but it was a. Uh, did you see Vitor's version of it on the SNES where he increased the frame rate and everything? Yeah, that was pretty wild. Still not the arcade version, but it was really incredible to see the difference. Yeah, a lot. I mean, frame rate makes a huge difference on that game, and physics. Like sometimes yeah. the physics are there's a there's a Sega Saturn port that looks really good, animates really well, but the physics aren't quite there. So, I don't think I've uh, ever played the Saturn version. Is that you, okay. uh, Japan only, or was that US as well? I think I think so. Yeah, hmm. yeah. That's so much more of a vast library if you go dip into the Japanese Saturn library than the US. Definitely. I mean, PC Engine and Turbo Graphics sixteen as well. Like it's 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 pretty crazy how much we missed out on in the states. Yeah, absolutely. So what are what are your favorite consoles to, to play or to work on for any of this stuff? Because a lot of your behind-the-codes have been NES games, right? They've been pretty NES-centric, but um, I, I have a lot of different consoles. Um, so my favorite would probably be the NES. I, did, I started with the Atari 2600 and NES and SNES, and that's probably where my favorites, favorites are. But at the same time, like, I mean, I played the heck out of NHL... 94 or whatever on the genesis at a friend's house you know and and have specific memories of those but so it's mostly 8-bit into 16-bit era and then i got really into uh pcs in the early 90s Mm. so and then i came back to consoles with the dreamcast and then kind of caught up and went from there so that's kind of my brief history of 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 consoles so you skipped over the whole first generation 3d graphics then 
Yeah, I kind of did. The 90s were a very uh, growing pains moment for uh, 3D gaming. So it's not to say that I don't go back and play some of those games, but, you know, things were changing on a monthly basis, it felt like. Yeah, it, it is kind of funny to see the similarities between, like, Atari 2600 and television ColecoVision into, like, PlayStation 1, Saturn, and N64 in that graphics... For those early consoles, both early 2D and early 3D, a lot of it was you got to use your imagination because they can't quite do what they're trying to do and they're learning as they go. So some of the stuff might work and some doesn't. So you can go back and play like Breakout or Super Breakout on 2600 and it's just as fun today as it always was. But there's a whole bunch of, you know, original Atari games where it's like I would never waste my time on this. And it's the same thing with a lot of the 3D games where it's like some of them just totally hold up because they're great games. And other ones, it's like, I see what you were going for with this, but I'm going to just go play a modern version of something similar instead. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And going back to Behind the Code, one of the main reasons why I've stuck with the NES is because Messen, if that's the way you even say the emulator name, is absolutely amazing. And sometimes, and you switch platforms, and you may have an emulator that is a gamer, you start playing and you think, oh, this is spot on. And maybe it is. But for me, if it doesn't have, you know, good debugging utilities in it, then it's it's tough to get into them and, and reverse engineer, you know, mm. with, 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 some, with an emulator that doesn't quite have that feature set to it. So... Um, I would like to get into some more Genesis games. And the very first episode I ever did, which was kind of like a pre behind the code was, was mostly um, Sega Genesis stuff, but there, and you can tell me, but their software emulation scene, (laughs) software emulation, I get open. I want to do a video at some point about FPGA and like software and the word emulation, but I haven't opened that can of worms. yet. (laughs) The problem with that debate is that most of the people that will comment are just trolls and assholes because everybody who understands the difference already knows and they won't bother to comment. And people that are like, oh, thanks for clearing that up, aren't the type to comment. So you go ahead and do that video, but you better just not look at a single comment on it at all because I already know what it's going to be like. That's part of the reason why I just haven't done it. <laughs> yeah, I've I've kind of skirted the issue by software emulation and hardware emulation. And people seem to be less upset about that than some of the other things. Uh, I know Mark from My Life in Gaming, I think, said simulation once. And I thought it was so well intended, but he got so much crap for that. I'm like, oh, that's not fair. That, was, that wasn't bad at all. But yeah, that's a that's a rough one to go down. But anyway, but, software emulation tools for the Genesis? Yeah, so basically just being able to, for any given platform, have access to good um, a good debugger to be able to step through code, viewing RAM, etc. So, And specifically on the Genesis, I can't remember. I think I used Regen D. It's like a deep, I don't know if you, I think that was the name of that one. Um, I think I used that emulator a lot. And then Exodus. I believe it was called. Mm. So, you know, Genesis Exodus. Um, and so, and they were both pretty good, but if you look at uh, some of their development time, like some of them haven't really been been updated in years, you know. And of course, you're also asking somebody a lot, you know, if they're doing an emulator in their free time, it's not like they're, unless they got contracted by Sega to write an emulator, they're not really going to get much for it, you know. And yeah. it's a tall order to write an emulator. 
Yeah, you you almost have to look for emulators that were designed with programmers in mind. Like, um, oh man, what's Calindro's emulator for the SMS? I'm so sorry, I totally forgot. I covered it a million times on the website too. Um, man, I'm gonna look that up just because I feel bad. But there are absolutely some emulators that are designed specifically for debugging and stuff like that. So it's you know that I don't know emulicious. Ah, there we go. Okay, so if you're looking for MSX, SMS, Game Boy, that that one's definitely programmer focused. But uh, because I'm not a programmer, I can't really remember which ones for which consoles have those features. Other than that, just because I've been following the project uh, on SMS Power since the first time I saw it. SMS Power is a very underrated website. They're a very there's a pretty good group of knowledgeable people on that site. And I'm sure I'm assuming that a lot of people. So I did play a Sega Master System back in the day because I had a neighbor who had one, but it wasn't very ubiquitous in the United States. Mm. So, but um, but now we have the internet and it's it's worldwide. So uh, you see a lot of the enthusiasts for the Sega Master System come together and share information there, and it's just it's a really great resource. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully we'll get more screen choices for the Game Gear because I think that's a pretty neat way to experience the library. Not by squishing SMS games into it, but by simply all of the SMS games that were ported to the Game Gear. Ported. We'll get to that in a second. I know your your video recently on that. But so, yeah, it's, you know, if the screen was better and you like portables, that that's kind of a really neat way to play a lot of those as well. Where are we on that anyway? Like in terms of Game Gear screen ability because aren't we looking toward like there's like a version two of the popular replacement screen that might be on the way that has more pixels i think there's a bunch out there now and a bunch in development and i stopped paying attention because i let tito do it for us (laughs) so i just i pay i pay attention to the macho nacho videos and when he teaches me about the new ones that's when i i I learn about them because so many of them were you know, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but so many of them were region locked in that like they wouldn't ship outside of the country they were manufactured in. Uh, a bunch of them were suspiciously similar to another. So is it a clone? Is it a clean room reverse engineering? And it's one of those like, I don't know, I'll wait for round two. I, I have one sitting next to me. I have two, I think, and they're both excellent and they're both far better than the original screen, like a million times better. Uh but my my hope is that someday, probably years from now, OLED screens are able to be made in different shapes. And we could just say, I want an exact Game Gear resolution OLED screen in this shape and, and be able to just drop those in all handhelds. I don't think, I don't know if that is possible. I don't think it'll happen. But that's my, uh, you know, that's my wish for handhelds is that get really good modern screens on them that just run in the original resolution. I agree. I have my uh, Game Gear. I put a replacement screen in, a popular replacement screen from about, oh, four years ago, three, four years ago, perhaps what you'd say. And it has different scaling options, but the, the cropping aspect ratio, shimmering, all that stuff for as good as the screen was, was so distracting. You know, it was for me personally, that is, you know, that I said, gosh, I really hope we can get something that can have a bit more pixels to be able to do that scaling. Yeah, I actually found both. I found that I started playing it as as like a lot longer just because I could actually see the screen. Uh, but on the flip side of things, I just I found also found myself messing with the settings the entire time when I really should have just been playing games on it. You know. No, I hear you on that. Yeah. 
you know, I just mentioned though, uh, you know, what is a port? Your NES versus Famicom disk system video that just came out. Um, uh, did you take a look at all as, as well as the, uh, and I can't remember, I'm sorry, because I've watched a bunch of your videos recently in a row catching up, but did you get into the whole uh, how NES games were translated to SNES for things like the Mario All-Stars connection, collection and things like that? I got into it a little bit on the air mailing enemies bug for Super Mario Brothers 2. Because... That's where I'm seeing that from a couple of months ago. Okay. Yeah. So, like, I don't know if you got into that one much, but basically hmm. you, when they... <laughs> when they brought over Super Mario Brothers 2, which was Doki Doki Panic, to the SNES, like the code almost matches exactly um, for, with the exception of the different addressing, 16-bit addressing on the NES, 24-bit addressing on the, on the SNES. Um, so they're going to go to different addresses. But other than that, the logic, at least the section of the logic that I was stepping through uh, was identical. And rather than, they they actually patched that bug elsewhere in the on the Super Nintendo version. So, hmm. um, you know, I, I'm assuming that somebody else who wrote it either or the same person that wrote it and hadn't seen it for a few years went, oh, uh, and they just kind of fixed it elsewhere, like for in a function that's further down the line in terms of code execution. So um, I don't know if that made any sense. No, basically... 100%. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I guess if it doesn't make sense to anybody, but go back and check those videos out. And uh, but I mean, I, I thought they were both pretty interesting in that you know, uh, what really defines a port? Because I just you know, in my mind, not a programmer going from like Metroid on the Famicom Disk System to the cartridge of it. Well, they changed the opening title music. I don't think much other music, if at all, was changed in that. Um, and then uh, that's not much of a change. So I, I just, in my brain visualize like a couple of code changes and that was it. And, but you're right. It's a different platform. You're calling out registers on a cartridge instead of places on a disc and stuff like that. And uh, it was pretty neat to see that. And that's what got me thinking back to, it must've been thinking back to your air mailing enemies bug video about how, uh, you know, NES games on SNES for that. And then recently, did you see the Mega Man game that was ported to the SNES? Uh, I think Infidelity did it. It was Mega Man 4, I believe, where he basically took the whole game and just translated over to SNES doing exactly that, changing the registers of where you know, the code was the same, but where it was called out on the console was different. Yeah, I think I think I saw that uh, maybe briefly on Twitter, but I hadn't I hadn't looked into it. But I think somebody um, uh, tweeted about it, and so I said, "Hey, somebody just port." I mean, there's an people could probably sit down and port all kinds of uh, you know legal issues aside, could yeah. port all kinds of NES games to Super Nintendo, and as far as they want to take advantage take advantage of the system, provided they know how to code on on the on the SNES. Yeah, because um, theoretically, you wouldn't have the sprite limit. Uh, well, I mean, it would be a higher sprite limit than you would on the NES, right? Because even though it's the same code, it's a hardware limitation, right? You would have some... I mean, you would have your own set of, of limitations, true, that are that are different than the NES, but ideally you'd have uh, more resources available to you. There, there are some odd things about the SNES, though, that um, without going into super technical detail, <laughs> but basically... Um, you could sit down if you're a programmer and write assembly for the Super Nintendo and execute it, and you're and you would say, "Hey, that works," and you didn't do anything wrong. 
But if you don't know the ins and outs of the hardware that kind of comes together and, and makes the Super Nintendo, mm. it's it's very possible you're going to have major performance issues, even on something that's rather simple. And I think if you look at the Super Nintendo library from launch and a lot of the stuff that people were developing, uh, you see a lot of slowdown in in some of those early games versus the later games where they were a little bit more familiar with the synergy of the Super Nintendo, Super Famicom hardware and can say, wait, no, I actually, yes, this works, but if I do it just this way, I gain like a ton of performance. And so that's kind of one of the, kind of the the things you need to know beyond simply how to code assembly, like 6502 assembly for that particular processor, even though it's compatible with the NES processor. Mm, That makes sense. That makes sense. That's a, you know, it's a tricky thing too, because you know, with FPGA gaming, you could have a, a, a real console-like experience on an RGB monitor and you could just do things like turn off the sprite limit and hope the game doesn't crash. And, you know, it's a lot of fun stuff that if you're into coding and, and this is a fun, enjoyable hobby, go for it. But it's not like the community as a whole would have been begging for this 10 years ago. And now that you're able to do a lot of this stuff and have still have a great gaming experience, it's like, that's really cool, but I'm just going to load up my mister and you know and increase the sprite limit or something like that just uh or i guess even on the avs has that through the cartridge you could plug in an original cartridge and and try that as well so it's always fascinating but it is kind of funny to see how everything's evolved and that what gamers want versus what other developers and tech people feel like doing for fun because they because they want to yeah i think in fact the, there was a guy that made Super Mario Brothers for the Commodore 64 hmm. uh, not too long ago and, you know, and shared it with the public, you know. But a lot of people who are not programmers will oftentimes question, well, why did you go, why did you take this intellectual property and put it on the Commodore 64, you know, because you're, you're risking and, sh- and share it with people because hmm. you're risking, you know, a, a takedown and we already have it for the NES, the Super and Nintendo, like, why would you do it on the Commodore 64? And that's where you basically have that divide between gamers and developers. And, well, I did it because, you know, do you want a, do you want a Ferrari that sits on your desk, like, like a little, uh, you know, 125 scale Ferrari? Or do you want to buy a model kit and put it together and paint it and have something that is almost identical to something that was made in a factory? It's about the journey more than it is the end product. You know, it's a great analogy. I'm totally stealing that. I'll credit you. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is a great analogy, and that is pretty cool. And it is funny to see, even some non-tech people will see that and totally get it. Just the same way somebody that's not an expert in cars could walk up to something that's a custom, beautiful job and just appreciate it without ever really knowing what it took to build the motor that way, you know, how they had to bang out the quarter panels to restore the original without any waves in the paint. Like, you know, you don't need to know any of those details to appreciate it. And it's funny to see that in code as well, where some people will totally get like, holy crap, Sonic the Hedgehog is playable on the C64 now, but it's not just a reskin of another game. Like, it's it's running, and the, the scrolling's smooth, and they don't know how or why, but they totally appreciate that. And you're right, other people are just like, why wouldn't you just go buy the toy car model and stick it on your desk? So, yeah. It's, it's cool that there's something for everybody, though. For sure, yeah. Like, everybody has a different point of view on, you know, the same thing, or they take a different path. 
You know? Yeah. So I, I, because I pulled up your uh, YouTube channel because I wanted to make sure I got the names of some of these right. But, um, you know, you do cover such a wide variety of tech stuff on this. You know, I, I guess your Super Nintendo aspect ratio was the first like technical from that perspective video that you did. Um, but you know, you certainly go through quite a bit of other stuff here. What do you think's been your favorite to work on so far? You know, I think the MSX video of all things, really scrolling sprites and stereotypes, because I think often in the gaming community, if you ask them, Hey, have you heard of the MSX? Do you know anything about it? Their first gut response is, Oh, it has metal gear and it has Castlevania mm. and that's it. And that's all that they would, they would know about it. And so that's, that's actually, that is actually why that video opens with me putting an NES down on a desk and saying, this is not an MSX, you know, and, and kind of spinning into, it's not a console, it's a computer. It has its, its own lineage and ha- evolved over the years. And especially for Americans, they're unaware of how it evolved in Japan and then also how it had a presence in, in Europe. And the more you look into that, the, the greater a rabbit hole it is. And so I just wanted to basically put as much information about that system as I could and just put it out there. Mm. And you've probably seen, you've encountered the divide between retro console gamers and retro computer gamers. And yeah. how... If you start talking to somebody about, say, the NES or SNES, and then you start kind of saying, well, what do you think about the, the Genesis and the Master System? And when you when did you get into 3D? But if you start talking about the Commodore 64 or the Apple II, Apple II GS or the MSX, like suddenly you've kind of lost them and you just go, ah, there's I don't really have any interest in that. You know, now it could be that's changing thanks to the mister. I don't know. Yeah, so I I think everybody probably had some experience on some kind of retro PC, but what experience they had would would really make the biggest difference in their in their nostalgia and their interest in it, right? So if your only memories of retro PC is playing Oregon Trail in your school library on a monochrome Apple II GS, you know, with a crappy five and a quarter inch floppy drive, like, you know, it might be neat, but you're not going to have love for it. But if you've put hours of your life sinking into a game where, you know, on any one of these platforms, that's going to be where your interest lies if you're looking back into it. And younger people getting into it today, it's the same type of thing. And, you know, PC gamers might be really interested in older PCs and console gamers might be interested in older consoles. But I've seen the disconnect when you're just talking about what, you know, what is the biggest interest, but I've also seen the curiosity be the same. So if it's like, if you say like, uh, what's your favorite game on the, you know, Amiga, you know, or, or Commodore 64 is probably the better example. And people go, Oh, I didn't have one. Well, the conversation's over. But if you start talking about something very cool about the Commodore 64 that a console gamer might be interested in, most of them will be like, really? Well, what's that all about? Tell me more type of thing. So, you know, there is, of course, always the trolls. It's like, you know, PC is better, consoles are better, but those don't count as people. So we should just ignore them anyway. (laughs) Yeah, they don't even count as people. (laughs) Took their human card away. Get out of here. Yeah, I mean, even on the on the Commodore 64 front, right, it's almost like a tale of two Commodore 64s. If you get someone who grew up and had an NTSC Commodore 64 and had a PAL 
Commodore 64, those are two completely different experiences. And it's not just a matter of, you know, games being developed for one that were ported to another. You would ask somebody, well, what are the top 20 games on the Commodore 64? If you get a room full of people that grew up on PAL, they would be in agreement. NTSC might be in, in agreement. I mean, there are tens of thousands of games on the system, but some were super popular. And then the two meet and they there's there's almost no... That Venn diagram is like, yeah, we have no intersection here. <laughs> yeah. You know, we have no common ground. So it's also weird for people that grew up on, you know, I'm, here's dating myself, IBM compatible PCs, right? Because the path that we took isn't really much different than today in that, you know, it's on one hand, it's wildly different, right? You used to have to boot into DOS, manually program your auto exec batch file to get your sound blaster in there. Like, you know, it's way different than today where you plug in a device and if you needed a driver, you're all like, what kind of moron didn't bake the driver into the, you know? So, but it's still the same perspective of you're sitting down with a keyboard and mouse, you're booting into programs, you're booting your games. You usually have to do some kind of tweaks to get them going. And a lot of those games are still playable in the same way through DOSBox or, you know, some of them could just run and you just have to tweak it a little bit. So going from there, it's not that people wouldn't have retro PC love for it. It's just it was something that stretched out over such a long period of time. Whereas like when I had my TRS-80 as a little kid, once I moved on to another computer, that was it. I never really went back. I had uh, my dad's Tandy 1000 you know, that that's kind of cool, but that's still IBM compatible PC territory right there. So it wasn't like that sandbox that you had to play in with, you know, because Commodore 64, you could only run those games on a C64. But my Tandy 1000 ran the same exact games that five different brand computers ran. So, you know, it was PC gamers could just encompass so much, at least here in the US. You know, I'm not sure growing up in different places, like if my friend in Australia, like, only had a Commodore 64. There was no, at least in his neighborhood with his friends, there was no any, nobody gaming on just regular PCs. Everybody just got their C64 or something. So it's it's kind of interesting to see the difference in that. I mean, which ones did you grow up on? IBM PC was the first one that that we had uh, in the home mm-hmm. that uh, you know my dad picked up, and I mean it was CGA, you know, like I mean it was 1984, you know, level PC. So. Uh, the games were pretty simple, but then you would go to school and, you know, I was working on an Apple II. Like the our computer lab was split in half. Half was Apple II and half was Commodore 64. Oh, really? So that Yeah. So that was another thing. IBM PC at home got to use the Commodore 64 and the Apple II at school and, you know, say, man, I wish I could play games on these that are not Oregon Trail. I enjoyed Oregon Trail. <laughs> <laughs> Totally know what um, you mean. But, uh, I mean, I died of dysentery as many times as <laughs> Somebody actually had Castle Wolfenstein at school. Oh, wow. I don't know how that happened, but that kind of blew my mind, being able to play that way back in the day, you know. And um, But, you know, I would say, gosh, you know, I kind of wish I had a Commodore 64 to be able to play these games, but, like, you didn't run out in, like, 1985 and and hey, say, hey, I'm going to drop, you know, $500 on, on this computer, too, or that, or whatever. And of course, that's one of the reasons why consoles have so much, like, home, like, penetration into the home is because move the decimal over on their costs, you know, especially yeah. way back then. So, yeah, I, I think the Tandy 1000 in, in the early 80s cost, like, two grand. Like that's that's insane to think. I think that's why we had it for so long before moving on to a 
I think I went from there to like a 386 PC that I, I bought off of a family member or something like that because just the price was wildly different. You know, I still kind of laugh sometimes when I see like an i5 laptop brand new for 399 and it's like, man, if you only knew, if you only knew what, you know, the price difference in that, even with inflation. I mean, do you remember portable PCs in the 80s? It was basically yeah. the tower with a CRT built in that weighed like 100 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like a boat anchor that that cost you a fortune, you know. So I maybe had one friend whose dad had one, and I think it was issued to him through work, you know. Same. And that was yeah. the only person I knew that had one at the time. Yeah, that's so. crazy. So, and it would be outdated in two years. Yeah, right? um, it would, but I think back then it was – it was a little either it was different or I'm just because I was so little back then it just was unobtainable but I think a lot of people just made what they had work for longer because it was so expensive so I think the PC that we had had the expansion to 256k of RAM in it which is still hilarious to think about today um, but you know that kind of bought a couple more years but then you started to see the games requiring uh, you know the first time I saw 384k I was like we're so close, but I can't play that game. And then, you know, it just kind of went from there. But I, I think a lot of people tried to make it, had to stretch it out just because you couldn't keep dropping, you know, 1500 two grand every three years or something. Whereas even with a console, you know, dropping 300 bucks every couple of years is way easier to swallow. Yeah. Yeah, the console, it's, it's amazing how consoles continue to get closer and closer to PCs in terms of their... Uh, hardware configurations and just kind of evolution like the the idea that we have consoles now where you have a pro version of a console that comes out same gen but higher performance you know is a parallel to i mean owning a pc i mean even like in the 80s king's quest 4 right they released two versions of it for the pc but one was lower resolution ega that they'd had you know uh and then for a few years and then well, now they have a higher resolution, a double resolution EGA version. But well, which which computer do you do you own? You know, mm. are you still going to need the old one, or are you going to need the new one? And that's when you start seeing like, hey, it's time to upgrade. Sorry, you can't run games anymore. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's frustrating. Yeah. So um, when you, you know, how do you choose what videos you make in these? Are you just like, do you have a million projects going on and whichever one's done next you work on? Or do you have a plan for these? Because they're, they're varied. I, I mean, they all make sense. They all, why they would be on your channel. But, you know, you're, you're bouncing back and forth between, you know, the, the Atari 2600 analog video scalers. I loved that one. And then you go right into like, uh, different code for battle toads and stuff like that. So it was pretty cool to to have the variety. But I was just kind of wondering what made you decide to do which. Well, sometimes it's just very a current events thing. So in the Atari uh, example, uh, Mike released the RetroTink 5X Pro, and I picked that up. And I said, "Well, the first thing I'm going to hook this up to is an Atari, you know, for, because I bet no one else is doing that right now." And just to kind of see how how it went. And I dabbled a little bit in Atari development. And I have a good friend of mine, uh, Daryl Spice, who's written a lot of uh, Atari homebrew games and, and sold them. And so I said, hey, this is a way for me to look at the code and the scaling. And then it's just simply my interest was just spinning. You know, just the fact that 
programmers for Atari had that level of control of the video signal. It wasn't, hey, you know, I only have so much time to do this work, and then VSync is going to hit, and we're going we're going to get a new frame. It's literally you're coding the program, and you have to say, oh, I need I need to I need to code vertical sync into the execution time and make sure it it happens at the right time. And so my interest in development, as well as my interest in analog video signals, I mean, just really collided with that. And so that's why I said, I'm going to do a video on this. And I basically parked everything I was working on, made that Atari video. And then meanwhile, the Battletoads video that came after it, not going to lie, someone in the comments on one of the previous Behind the Codes video videos was like, you should do the Battletoads Turbo Tunnel. And I said, sure, why not? And, that, and, and so that's why... And that's how I started working on that one, you know. So, that's funny. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I, for me, a lot of the videos that I do is feedback like that, where it's just a bunch of people keep asking the same question. So I go, well, this needs to be answered, I guess. So let me just whip up a video. And sometimes I try to do things that are topical and I try to do things that I think would fit and I fail miserably. And it just, it's like a metaphor for my life. Whenever I just do me, I do fine. And whenever I try to be something that I think other people might want me to be, I fail miserably at it and i'm like yeah should just been the jolly fat guy and stop trying to be <laughs> anything else but so, yeah so sometimes i might have a million ideas in my head but sometimes i'm like gosh when i finish this project whatever it is i'm working on at the time what on earth am i going to do next you know i don't really like to have dead time because it takes so long to crank out those videos you know so yeah I can't imagine you running out of ideas though, because there's just so many awesome things for you to talk about and so many different ways to look at things. And there's, you know, I guess maybe if you're not inspired in the moment, cool, but I think your channel doesn't have an end in sight. I think you could keep doing this for a long time. If you, if you still enjoy it and you, you know, you wanted to. Definitely enjoying it right now. And you're right. I do feel like there are tons of topics to, to cover. And I also feel like, especially when you get to things like aspect ratio and video signals, I mean, one of the reasons why I started making those videos is I didn't really want to do a vlog style video. I wanted something that could be a reference video, you mm. know, that anybody who's interested in the topic, just as you would look up something on Wikipedia, you could go to YouTube and be like Super Nintendo aspect ratio, you know, or like Luma signal or something like that and just get a video that just talks about that particular topic. So a lot of people like that Super Nintendo aspect ratio video gets mentioned a lot, I think, on Reddit, where people will be in a discussion about aspect ratio and then someone will cite it. And and so and I'll see a little surge from that. And so and that, that's a lot of fun because I'm like, oh, somebody must be talking about this somewhere, you know, or something like that. So but you're right. I feel like I feel like I get lost on what am I going to do next? But it's not because I've run out of ideas, but it's because there's just so there are so many things out there, you know, and I just need to make sure I choose the right one and uh, don't feel like I've lost too much time. I mean, you talk about going down a rabbit hole, the Monopoly trade AI video. Uh, that was almost <laughs> a nightmare. <laughs> How long did that take like, you? Oh, this is so much code and I can't keep it straight. But, you know. Um, still managed to crank out a video for it. How long did that take you to make then? Uh, I feel like, I feel like it took like four, four or five weeks or something like that. Wow. Jeez. You know, one thing I've always been curious about, and I don't know if this is good enough for a video or if it's so simple that you could just answer it, but why was it that the 
input latency programmed into Mortal Kombat for the Super Nintendo was so much longer than for the Genesis. And for anybody unfamiliar, you know, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but from the time you press the button to the time there's movement on screen has to do, on, on classic consoles that are all wired and plugged in, has to do with partially the hardware and when it detects it, the button press based on the frame, but also in how it was coded to read that and and make something happen on screen. And I liked both games. I got used to it because it's not unlike variable input lag. It's not something that you can't adjust to. I just, you know, when I was in the arcades, it felt way different than at home. But I was just kind of curious why there was so big of a difference in that. Because I think it was like two frames on the SNES, one frame on the Genesis, and one frame on the arcade or something. It could, well, so this is all speculation. It would be better for me to, you know, look into it directly. But sometimes whenever you're handling your code loop, because every game is just a giant loop, you know, mm-hmm. and you're, you're, you have a, a frame that's output. And as that frame, at least, for instance, on the NES, as that frame is being output, you're, you're basically racing the clock uh, before V-Sync hits to be able to prep everything for the next frame. Collision detection, user input, etc. You know, if you have some sort of uh, you know animation progress, and and also how quick does an enemy respond to you know the button press? Like, does it need to figure out a lot of that AI before you actually see the response or not? So it's 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 a combination of that and as well as how efficiently the programmer wrote the work, right? Mm. Because if you don't finish all the work you need to do in the right amount of time, then you have to repeat that same frame the next 60th of a second, you know? And if that happens a whole lot, your frame rate, you, you would start stuttering, slowing down. You're like, man, there's a lot of slowdown here. But sometimes that can happen at such a rate that maybe you aren't really detecting it, but it's just like they're trying to turn through so many things that um, it's just they can't get all that work done in time in order to get your input input for that frame they're like well whatever we'll pick it up the next frame and start processing it then and so you 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 lose that 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 frame now the only experience i have specifically on that is in the legend of zelda i don't know how much of the collision detection video you watched because that one did get kind of complex but there is a wind up of four frames i think whenever you use your sword to stab an enemy in the original legend of zelda so when you press the button you see the sword like four or five frames later. And that's not, that's not input lag. Literally the programmer has it looped through four frames and says, okay, now when, when for link to stab the sword. And, and so, and there's, I put a game genie code in there so you could, you could turn that off. Um, so then you can sit there and like, I mean, rapid fire link sword if you want to, because there, there is no delay before usage. So, it's like, do you do a delay or do you do a cooldown if you want to restrict how quickly someone can attack? Like, mm. that's one thing that somebody would have to think of whenever they're they're coding the game. That's interesting. I do remember that video. It did get a little complicated, but I stuck with that one. <laughs> <laughs> but 
Yeah, that's pretty. But, it, it, all that stuff's very fascinating to me too, and it's also understandable. You know, you have a big IP like Mortal Kombat that you're bringing home from the arcade. You have X amount of months to do it. They've already announced the release date. Is it working? Yes. Okay, we got to get it out the door. Like, I, I totally understand all of that, especially back in the day where there were no software patches on day one downloads. Like, that's it, right? So you make it work, get it out, cross your fingers. But I mean, I guess that's why we're seeing a lot of people do things like the Doom 32x Resurrection. Uh, you know, where people are doing things that are just ridiculously amazing on original hardware that could have been done back then, but probably not on those budgets in that time period that they had and the tools that were available, I guess. Yeah, like understanding the um, programmer ability and business demands mm-hmm. is is a, a lot of times the, the end user, the gamer in this case, would say, oh, the programmers just didn't know what they were doing. It could, you know, and you might say as the programmer, I can code this in six months and it'll be amazing. And the business would say, great, do it in two. (laughs) And that was, and that was that. And there was no way to catch up and patch it later in the cartridge days. You just had to do it, you know? So. Yeah. I I remember, you know, I think a somewhat decent example is modern vintage gamers coverage of the, when Mario 64 was decompiled or or completely reverse engineered. And then when people were recompiling it, they were getting it faster performance. And it's just, you know, I I enjoyed the perspective of there could have been so many things involved in that, including just very basic, like, no, compile it the safer manner because these got to ship next week. And we're, you know, we're not retesting every aspect of this game just because you found a new way to compile it. Like, go back to the other way and, you know, that's it. We're out of time. So it wasn't, it shouldn't really have been considered a mistake so much as just, you know, what they had to work with at the time. But, uh, you know, I'm sure their engineers, if they could have, would have then, you know, gone back and, and tried different things. But heck, even as, you know, even in IT and even for some of the development stuff that I'm, I've been doing for years now in that I often take the safer approach first because you don't want to be troubleshooting things like compiling errors. You want to be troubleshooting what you're working on and then, okay, we'll go back and figure out a different thing. So, you know, it's easy to see how time constraints could have just made that what it was. And, you know, you could apply that to so many of the things that you found, so many of the things that you talk about. And of course, even just artistic choices, right? That's how long it takes from Link to stop swinging a sword to get ready and swing again a second time. So, yeah, it really, I mean, even like writing, I did some DOS development in around 93 in like Turbo C, right? And there was some, I was writing a, just a game for fun. And suddenly the game had doubled or tripled in size. And, and I said, whoa, wait, what happened? And it was because whenever you could compile, you could say include debug code. So if the game were to crash, it would know it would split out a whole lot, spit out a whole lot of information for you, or you could like step through it, et cetera. And I had the little exe file to run, and I was like, "Why is that so large?" And it was just a matter of like unchecking a box, you know. Mm. So if somebody is working on a game in a big professional situation, like I don't know Mario sixty four, for example, it could be that they have it ready to go, and then say, "No, we need to fix a few things," and then they like turn debug code back on, and then they ship it and it works but oh we didn't turn that off you know but if you didn't really notice any performance problems during that moment of testing you wouldn't have noticed it you know in time to be able to at the right part of the game that says wait a minute 
like wherever the um where was the the example i think it's like in a water level or something and you come up is it like a submarine the, or... yeah in the frame rate is is very it is a noticeable difference if it's recompiled in the faster one but that was just you know that was the main example so unless their testers got caught in that exact spot and picked it up you know how else would they have known right right yeah so it's just it's just kind of one of those things and again like cartridge days right it's totally possible that had mario 64 debuted on the switch that a month after launch they they'd release a patch and it would just say performance improvements and that would be it and you wouldn't have any idea what they fixed but you'd say okay you know yeah, you'd and, have no idea that the entire code not the assets was being deleted and re-downloaded with the newly compiled version you just saw a performance update and that was that so yep yeah that, <laughs> pretty neat but I mean, I, I like I like both aspects, right? You know, I, I was just complaining the other day on a podcast about how when I played Owlboy on Switch, it was the most, it was the worst gaming experience I ever had. I've I've never had a game crash as much as that one. And uh, a couple people commented like, "Hey, same thing." Uh, and I stopped playing it. I just went back last month and downloaded the latest update, and it's perfect. It never crashed once. So it's like. You know, both ways to look at that. It's very cool that you already paid for something that now is working right. But, you know, would that have ever shipped back in the day on a cartridge if it was that broken? So, you know, yeah. it's the best of both it's, worlds, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, being able to patch stuff is a catch-22. Yeah, I mean, it's as a, as somebody who's writing the code, you can say, oh, good. I You know, if I made a major mistake and I'm embarrassed about it or whatever, I can fix it and then we can update it. But as a company, you could say, you know what? We're at eighty-five percent completion. Let's ship the game. You know, yeah, and we'll catch up later. That that kind of thing. And, that, and that's such a marketing move because any nerd goes. But sometimes you get to ninety-nine and you realize that you messed up and you got to go back to seventy-five to finish it. And so, yeah, it's oh god, it's gonna be maddening. <laughs> Yeah, it was the late the late 90s on PC in particular when when 3D had really kicked up and we were seeing, you know, DirectX was really hitting a stride. Um, I was getting a lot of games around 1999, 2000. And that was when I first said the phrase out loud, out loud, release now, patch later, hmm. you know, because you were starting. They said, hey, we have this Internet now. We can distribute patches to everyone. So because previously, if they shipped something on a computer and it had a problem, you could either download it from their BBS if you had a modem or they would literally send you like a patch floppy disk in the mail. And it's not as though they were going to do that with cartridges. So right. although you've seen some cartridges did get revision, like Super Mario Brothers 2, right? There, there are two different revisions of Mario 2 because they, they fixed a bug. And it's not as though they're going to tell you, hey, we fixed that. It's just if you bought the game in 1988, it's going to be different than if you bought it in 1989. Yeah. And nobody knows, you know. So. Yeah. Wasn't it also the Zelda versions as well? The end screens look different. Um, there, there's a few things with that where there's just uh, differences between when you when you would have purchased that cartridge. Yeah. So the original Zelda, the original Zelda, the cartridge release in the US, the first cartridge release didn't have that hold and reset and hit power off screen. Mm -hmm. And my friend down the street who that's where I saw Zelda for the first time, 
he had a, an NES at launch. And so he got Zelda when it came out. And um, and then I got it much later. It was 1989, I think. And uh, and my copy had the little box at the, at the bottom that said, hey, hold and reset and hit power off. And that was one of their one of the revisions that you can obviously see um, as part of revision one of Zelda. So, and that had to do with the MMC one chip because they eventually fixed that. You don't have to hold in reset and hit power off on any battery backed game on the MMC three or five. I think. Um, I definitely didn't have to do that when I bought it. I didn't get my NES at launch. I think it was more like 89, 90, something probably 89, I think is when I got mine. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I never once had to hold reset in order to have the save file. That always just worked for me. And I, I played through that game a couple times when I was a kid and never, you know, I never lost the save or anything. Yeah, it has something to do with, I think, like power decay. So like when you turn off the the console, uh, it still kind of runs the software mm. a little bit and then just kind of peters out. Whereas like holding reset in like basically holds the processor, you know, in a hey, don't don't process anything. And then you hit power off and you can release reset. The only saves I've ever seen corrupted, I think, were uh, Zelda 2. Um, and it would still pass it. Like, you wouldn't lose your save game, but your attack power would go from 8, which is the maximum you could have, to, like, 0 or hmm. F. And you could one-shot everything. So, like, I mean, even, like, you get all the way to Thunderbird and you can just one-shot him, you know, at the very end. So I think the only one you couldn't was uh, Shadow Link or whatever you whatever you call him. I still um, I still can't get into that game. I uh, Nicole uh, Nicole Express was streaming that the other day and I jumped on for a few minutes and I was just like, yeah, sorry I can't. I just it's not you know that wasn't my Zelda growing up and it was just a, a totally different thing. And I, I don't know why I still can't really get into it. Yeah, I think that's why. I mean, I think it's a pretty good game, but I think because it was so different than the Legend of Zelda that. A lot of people didn't like it, you know. A, a parallel a decade later would be when they showed footage of Zelda, The Legend of Zelda for the GameCube, and it was Ganon and Link fighting. You're like, oh, you know, this is the next evolution of, you know, Ocarina of Time graphics. And then they said, nah. And then they changed the art direction and made Wind Waker. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to play that. It's terrible. It looks ugly, you know. And, uh, you know, perhaps. But like you said, it's like it's not the Zelda they were expecting to make yeah. a loose parallel. That was you know? definitely, you know, the, the art direction was a choice in that game, but it was still a, a 3D feeling Zelda, right? So, it, you know, that part was cool. But just the whole, the 2D side-scrolling sections were just like, that's such an un-Zelda thing to do. You know, you're only supposed to do that when you go in the cave to get your bow and arrow or to skip through the levels or something like that. It, it was it's kind of kind of neat. I don't know. Maybe I'll revisit it or something, but I just, I don't know why. It just, I never, that was never my thing. I could never get into that version of it. I, I keep trying to have an open mind, but I don't, we'll see. Maybe somebody will do some crazy SNES port of it like they did with the BSL stuff and, you know, make a, a new version of it or that I'll try to get into, but it, it's kind of hard. It's funny. Nintendo never really did anything with that stuff either. You know, you don't see that too much, right? Yeah, I feel like if if Nintendo decides that they want to kind of up something, I mean, we saw Link's Awakening, right? Get the the huge port all the way up to to Switch from Game Boy um, slash Game Boy Color, I guess. Um, and that was a big change. But something like 
Zelda 2, like they left a lot of that stuff behind with the exception of, you know, Mario All-Stars, I guess, whenever, when they did, um, when they did Super Nintendo. And I, I assume it sold really well. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you're, if you happen to know off the top of your head how well something like Mario All-Stars sold back in the day as a collection. No, but everybody I know had one. That's for sure. Because it was, you know, and the number one thing that all of my friends loved about it was that we could go and play Mario or all of the different Mario games and save in the right spots so you don't have to go back from the beginning so you could take more time exploring and less time just grinding through because you don't want to have to go through the first, you know, six levels again before getting to, to the hard parts. So, yeah, it had to have sold well enough. And I, It's so weird that Japan got the BS Zelda, but not... You know, not anything like that in the U.S. And you would have thought that would have been a pretty big, uh, a pretty big seller is like a Redux version of Zelda One and Two with you know the 16-bit graphics. Yeah, I mean, they I think they could have done a lot of stuff. They could have done well. Eventually, we saw Metroid Zero Mission, right? But like yeah. the original Metroid on Famicom Disk System, you could save instead of do passwords. So. I mean that that probably alone would have increased a lot of people's enjoyment of Metroid, you know, because having to deal with oh I gotta you know I either have to die or press up and A or whatever on controller two, write down a password which you may get wrong, you know, and then re-enter it the next time you power up. What if you could just save, power off, come back to it later, just like you would the Legend of Zelda? You know, that would make a difference. True. So. They were probably relying on their sequels and not reboots and stuff as much as they do now. But, I, you know, that original Metroid game certainly could have... Uh, I mean, that was... The little differences between Super Metroid made such a difference. Did you ever play the ROM hack Retroid? Uh, I don't think I have. Is that Does it add the map and stuff so in it? it or? No, it's for Super Nintendo. It basically turns Super Metroid into Metroid. Same map, okay. auto-saving. So whenever you enter, like if you pass into Norfair and then you turn off the SNES, it'll automatically save there and bring you back where that is. There was a couple of bugs. I kept trying to reach out to the person who made it and I never heard back. Uh, and QWERTY Moto recently took a look at it and worked through some of the bugs, implemented the map fixes. Um, and I think the last step was, I think we're looking to uh, take the Famicom Disk System soundtrack and make that an MSU1 addition to it. Oh, wow. So, but I mean, it just, it's the, 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 yeah, I played through the last version that was officially released and I plan on replaying it when QWERTY's done with it, but it was so good because it was just, it was everything that you liked about the first one without any of the annoyances and you know some of the i just remember trying to play Kraid in the original and it's just impossible to have that boss fight and now it's you know it's more fair it's it's the same controls as super metroid a little locked down to feel more metroid-esque but i thought that was cool and i think there's always so much potential to reboot the best of the of the series of any games and so i'm always wondering why you know, I guess you can't, if you beat something to death, then you, people lose interest. But there, there's certainly a lot of room for Nintendo to do that with a lot of their intellectual property. And it, it's just a shame that they haven't in a long time. Like Link to the Past, right? That could get the same exact treatment as uh, Link's Awakening. I, I have no idea why they wouldn't do that. Yeah, I mean, they could almost use the Link's, the new Link's Awakening engine. People sometimes throw that word around too much, but... And 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 basically morph it into a link to the past. But Nintendo's not really one to like do something like a half baked version of something. You know, like they 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 really like to put 
polish on it. So I don't know that they would just say, oh, we'll just change up the map and we'll use the same engine and make it linked to the past. Like they really have to give it an extra oomph, you know? Yeah. So at least I think, I feel like they, they would. I, I do really wish they would do that stuff with the entire 3DS library because there are so many games on there that were excellent that would fit right at home on the Switch. You know, some very minor changes, uh, even if it was... I don't think they'd... Uh, well, I guess maybe that's the issue right there is some games would kind of have to be locked in portable mode and wouldn't be able to use it in docked mode. And I don't think they'd they'd be cool with that. But there's so many opportunities, and you know, with so much shovelware out there, it's surprising yeah. that they don't capitalize a little bit more on the stuff that that is both good and would definitely sell. Yeah, and I don't know if they would ever devote resources to it, but one other video I made was about um, should we patch old games? Hmm. You know, and it, it was about the, uh, as I say, Fazanadu. Some people say Faxanadu, uh, bug. You know, with the pendant and. Um, but like, for instance, Zelda 2 has performance issues because it was ported, there's that word again, from the Famicom disk system to the, the cartridge version, MMC1. Technically, if you had somebody at Nintendo who's familiar with NES programming, I don't know if they still have people employed that are or would care, they probably wouldn't take that much time, especially having access to the original source code to basically say, let's make it an MMC three game and just see what happens, you know, or let's, let's tweak this thing here. And now the Zelda two that's on whatever the heck they call the virtual console stuff these days would have improved performance instead of just being a ROM from 1988, 89, that's continually been, been stuffed in an emulator and released on a new platform. So that's an interesting debate. Then if they are adding save states to games on the virtual console, they're already patching them one way or another right so would 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 it be better to go the extra distance and fix the things that are broken from the older games or or is it better to offer the player a choice play it without save states in the original version play it you know you know patched with the newer one it's kind of an interesting thing because that that was certainly something that that uh Talk about misunderstood because Twitter limits your characters. That was a whole debate two years ago or something about should you play games with save states. And, you know, the answer to that is so easy and do whatever the heck you want. <laughs> Just, you know, if you're about to enter a tournament or, or you know, put your, um, you know, bragging rights, you don't beat a game with save states and try to talk down to people that beat it without it. It's just two different, two completely different things. And, but it's it's kind of the same type of debate in that do you change history for the better? Do you tell people to experience it the way it was? I just I think having the choice is probably the best the best answer. But it would be cool to see Nintendo go back and fix a bunch of that stuff that that's easy to fix, especially if there's already community patches out there. You know, romhacking.net has just romhacking.net is just a treasure trove of stuff like that where you can go through and get performance and quality of life updates and. Uh, it'd be kind of cool to see to see them do that, or, or if Nintendo ever embraced the community and just, you know, as you load up the ROM that you get, you could that you've legally obtained through the Virtual Console service, you could choose whatever patches you want to implement that time when you use it or something. That would be neat, but I don't think we'll ever see that. I mean, I think it would be fun. I don't think anybody is going to make a device like this because I don't think there's a market. But if we had like a modern day Game Genie device mm. that had some sort of um, 
gosh, you could even have like Wi-Fi, but technically you would put your cartridge in that and then put it in your Nintendo and it could hit up romhacking.net and you could just apply the patch, you know, on the fly or save game genie codes and choose from a pre-selected, you know, cheat thing. But I don't really know that there's there's a market for that for those that do enjoy the the actual cartridge retro gaming versus those that would just say, ah, well, I have a flash cart that can do that. So yeah, I'll just go that route, you know? Yeah. I, I can't remember correctly, but I think Mr. Was working on the Mr. Dean was working on something like that, where you could choose your patch before loading a ROM, but that that might've only been for one core and, and I might be taking it out of context. It might be something totally different, but I like that idea too, but you're right. It's a lot of work to have to do that with the original cart. Um, they, they did act, Hyperkin sold something based on the LCD mod, uh, ROM hack that allowed you to use your NES on a, or the zapper through duck hunt on a flat panel TV. And that's essentially all it was doing is patching it in real time, which I thought was really cool. So, you know, just in light of what happened this week, right. You know, Hyperkin definitely gets props for some stuff. They're not the big evil company. That was certainly a really cool. One. And it was done with permission. They didn't just steal the guy's patch. So, you know, it, it's kind of neat to see that, but yeah, you're right. Maybe just like a game genie that with a, a, a one of those cheap Wi-Fi chips in it. So you connect it to your network and then you just pull out your cell phone and then you could select what patches you want for that game. That That might actually, that might actually work. That's true. I mean, theoretically, you could also, I mean, even if you didn't have an in-game menu, you could use your cell phone to edit RAM on the fly or edit the ROM on the fly if you wanted to. Um, But as fun as that stuff sounds, I always get concerned because I don't want any of that stuff entering into speedrunning. Yeah. Um, So... It's 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 a bit of a I love speedrunners. I love the stuff they do. I hope that at some point I make a ROM discovery that influences speedrunning. I'd love for that to happen, you know. So, but as we go down that path of like finding like new ways to change games and cheat or whatever, you know, that's that's more stuff that's tempting, you know, those people to, you know. But most people I've met from the speedrunning community are just absolutely amazing people. And they were like, hey, whatever. I would never do that, you know, because I have a conscience, <laughs> you know, but, um, yeah. So, I mean, I, obviously I can't speak for an entire group of people, but almost every single one of the speedrunners that I've gotten to know that I'm friends with, it's, it's really more about their own self-satisfaction and celebrating that publicly is almost a cool bonus. Whereas yeah. like they really just, they want to know themselves that they did it. And the thought of cheating isn't, you know, they would absolutely cheat to practice. Okay, let me use yeah. the save state. Let me, you know, let me speed up the game here. Let me get infinite lives. Definitely. And that's a, an excellent tool for that. But it's all about them themselves. Like, I want to feel like I did this. I don't want to feel like, I, you know, I don't want to lie to myself. So, yeah, I mean, there's always, you know, every group's got their got their one or two. But, you know, the, the majority of the people I've worked with are, are very much like that, where it means a lot to them to be able to do these things. But... So yeah, you're right. I wonder how that would affect speedrunning. It would might be kind of fun to mess with. I don't know how many people would, but obviously if a product was developed by that like that, you have to support it and go through all the commercializing of it, etc. Unless you just open sourced it and said good luck. Um true. Yeah, I don't know if there's a market for that or not, but it so, so be some something I'd love to mess with, that's for sure. 
do you make any hardware or are you uh you know strictly i haven't really gotten into making hardware i mean i think it would be fun to get into it but i think if i started down that path then i mean i wouldn't have any time for youtube videos (laughs) and that's kind of you know that's kind of where my passion is right now is doing some research and then scripting something that hopefully makes sense and then cranking out a video about it and then moving to the next thing so that makes sense. I mean, it's kind of cool too, because it's, you know, you have a hobby that you enjoy and you get to share it with other people and, you know, grow a community around the stuff that you do. And it's, so it's, you know, I imagine that's pretty rewarding and versus just like, okay, I'm going to go make a board and, you know, but, you know, release it to the public and hope somebody likes it. You know, it's, it's to some people that is the community that they've built, but, uh, you know, you've already dug your heels in pretty deep and, and have some, a pretty awesome library of videos to go through. So. Thanks, Bob. I really hope to continue to to grow it over the years. So keep running with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, as we wind this down, is there anything that you wanted to tell people? Anything that any stories that you wanted to tell? Anything that I forgot that that you just wanted people to know who are you know just getting to know you? Because you know, a lot of people watch your videos, but you know, without stuff like this, you know, it's kind of hard to know the 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 person behind the code. <laughs> yeah, just I hope that everyone, like, no matter what how technical or not technical they are. I hope everybody feels welcome to watch it because I really do want to just simply share technology and the things that I'm, that I'm learning with them. So, you know, um, and the people, the viewers of my channel now, the community is large enough and is full of many people who do software development for a living. And so, if you have a question and you post a comment on that video, if I don't get to it, it's quite possible that somebody else will. That's so awesome. an NES developer, someone who's done a lot of work in the community could answer it or just another programming assembly enthusiast, for example, uh, in the, in the case of behind the code. So like, just, just feel, and don't, don't feel like you have to watch a video all the way through you know, feel like you can pause it, roll it back, or, you know, just try out certain things and just kind of see if it interests you. Because it could be something that, you know, maybe you wanted to dip your feet in the pool of development, but you're not sure. And as soon as you start watching that video, you might you might leave my channel and start doing more research and coding. I mean, that's great. If you feel inspired to do that, do it. And if you're a teenager, I've had some people comment who are in high school, or they're looking to go into college and pursue computer science, like, watch it. It might be a career launch pad for you in terms of interest. That's a very good point. So like, don't just think, Oh, it's just a video and I'm not, you know, uh, it's, it's more technical. It's more lecture. Like it's, it's not as entertaining. Like take from it what you want. (laughs) That's basically what I'm saying. Yeah. But you always do a good job kind of summing things up at the beginning. Um, so, you know, you talk about the problem at hand, you talk about what it is that you're going to be discussing, you show some examples. So I think that's, that's as, as inviting as anybody could ask for, right? You know, I think anybody could watch any one of your videos randomly, just click on it and get a sense of what it is that you're trying to explain and then kind of go, you know, neat, but this one isn't for me or holy crap. I always wondered what, why this was the way it was. I can't wait to see all the extra details and learn about this. So I do think you've already nailed making your videos welcoming to people. Uh, it's just, you know, the typical YouTube crap. How do you make the thumbnail the most appealing? How do you get caught in the algorithm? How do you, you know, how do you deal with that? But that's everybody's struggle. 
Right. Should I make a thumbnail that has a Zelda cartridge that says this is a port with an arrow pointing to it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, that's you know. I, I thought that was great. I thought that was an excellent way to 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 grab people's attention without being cheesy. You know what I mean? That's a, that's the happy medium of like very basic. Here's why you want to watch this versus, you know, going a little too far. If I feel comfortable enough to make a clickbaity thumbnail, it's because hope hopefully I feel like I have delivered on the promise you know it's not just an empty hey click my video yeah type of thing yeah and that you know i do have to go back and try to figure out a way to make thumbnails for the super technical stuff for mine like you probably don't want to watch this i don't want to make that the thumbnail but like i want to try to make it so that people familiar with my stuff it's like here's a tutorial where if you're into the subject you're really going to want to watch this and if you're not please don't waste your time watch another one of my videos <laughs> true i mean when my life and gaming was doing all the rgb uh stuff you know they were naming it like 101 201 401 i mean they made it sound like courses you know because i mean they were going into some of that tech stuff and probably wanted to give off that vibe for anybody clicking on it i mean i haven't asked Corey or try that but that's just what i assumed I think I, I vaguely remember talking to them about it, and I, I think it was pretty much that where they just wanted to feel like it was a, you know, a lecture series, but more entertaining than that, where people could learn. So I think that's pretty much it. Yeah, that is a pretty good idea. I don't know. I just I suck at YouTube, so I just need somebody to come in and rename all my videos and put them all in different categories. And you know, just, I, I wish I had the resources to to just hire people to do that, so I just not even think about it anymore. But. Luckily, I got Mason helping me with thumbnails now, so they don't all look like uh, like somebody trying to make something in MS Paint, which is basically what most of my other thumbnails were. <laughs> so, well, thanks for taking the time to do this. I hope this is the first of many. Um, maybe the next time, maybe the next time I'm super into one of your videos that I just don't understand chunks of it, we could just do a fun, silly live stream where we take questions from other people too, and and just kind of dig yeah. deeper into this stuff because. You're just you're doing such a great job teaching people about a wide range of stuff, and uh, you know I, I definitely looking forward to seeing what I, what else you do and how many other times you could confuse me when I'm watching TV at night trying to catch up on my YouTube. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, and I of course will put links to all of your social media, where to find you, and all of that stuff in the description. Awesome.